Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Silence, where we are bringing science into focus on radio fodder. I'm Katrina, an immunology PhD student, and I'm here as always with Kai. How are you, Kai? I'm pretty good, thanks, Katrina. And for those listening, I'm a PhD student studying physics. Yay! Physics. <laughs> <laughs> and Kai and I are also joined by Charlotte today. Charlotte, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Hey, Kai. Hey, Katrina. Um, So I am a third year uh, undergrad student uh, studying science at UniMelb, and I'm majoring in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, I also work at BirdLife Australia um, and just have have an all-round passion for birds, um, which you will pick up on uh, (laughs) through my segments today. Nice. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Um, But yeah, that's absolutely right. So our segment today is all about animals, ecology, evolution, all that kind of thing. So Charlotte is essentially an expert compared to Kai and myself. (laughs) But before that, we'll get into some news. Kai, do you have a news story for us this week? I do. So my news is about structural color. Now, normally when we color things, we use pigments or dyes. But another way you can produce color is this thing called structural color. And that's where you have structures on the micro or nano scale that interact with light in a special way that only reflects very specific colors. Now, structural color is responsible for like why the underside of a CD is sort of rainbow colored. You know, mm-hmm. when you, you tilt a CD and get that rainbow effect, that's because of the, the structure on the bottom of the CD or little holes that store the information. Now, structural color is also responsible for like a vast number of colors in nature. And actually a lot of the, like a lot of the times when you see the color blue in nature, it's actually structural color. Blue pigments aren't very common. Mm. So some examples include butterflies and beetles, uh, like hummingbirds and peacock feathers. Like if they're bright blue or sort of you see hummingbirds, they're Colors sometimes change as they they move around. That's also structural color. And also people with blue eyes, the blue color in your eyes is is actually structural color. It's not blue pigment. So structural color is really, really cool. But some scientists or lots of scientists are trying to make use of it for technological applications. So very recently, some scientists in Sweden and the UK built a prototype display like a screen that uses structural color. And so what they did was they made these structural color pixels and then they covered the whole thing with a polymer layer that can change from clear to black depending on electrical signals. It's similar mm-hmm. technology to what's used in e-readers. So, you know, like yep. yeah, yep. e-book reader things, um, but it's, it's faster at updating. So e-readers... You know, they can be slow because you don't turn a page very op- often. But in in this case, you needed to update really fast to have a, a screen, basically. Mm. So they've used this technology to make a display. And there are some really cool things about having a structural color display. So first of all, it's more energy efficient because the color doesn't come from... It's not emitting light. You don't need LEDs or anything in there that j- use electricity you only need electricity to switch on and off the black layer. Wow, that's so cool. 
it is cool because it's using the light, the reflected light, rather than generating its own light. So oh. it doesn't need any energy at all to maintain a static image. So if just a, a, you know, if the image doesn't change, it doesn't need any energy. So like that could be really cool for more energy efficient displays in future when they can make this into like a mass produced product. And yeah, I just think that's really cool. And it's also a really cool way that scientists are looking to nature for inspiration. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Biomimicry. It's incredible. Like what we can learn from nature. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Charlotte, what about you? What news have you got to share? Right. So my um, news story is um, that right now um, around the Queensland, New South Wales border, uh, we've got an emu migration going on, um, which I think is pretty cool. So we're going to see like emu emu wars number two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we've just got these mobs um, of emus uh, sort of walking um, these vast distances from Queensland into New South Wales. Um, and this hasn't been seen for quite some time now. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't really think of emus as migratory animals. I don't think I just, they just potter around and kind of <laughs> peck things and just, I don't know. And are also pretty solitary, but at the moment they're, they're migrating in, in groups and this actual phenomenon is, um, uh, that emus migrate in groups together. And this is the only time that they ever form groups. Um, and in Eastern Australia, these emus only uh, migrate in response to sort of resources. So um, when there's drought in one area, they'll move away from that and try and find um, areas um, where there's been more rain and so there's more food around. So at the moment, they're migrating from Queensland, which is... Um, are quite drought stricken and into New South mm-hmm. Wales, which has previously been very um, hard hit by drought over the last few years, but now is back to, I think, 95% um, out of drought. So that's mm-hmm. awesome. Oh, cool. um, but yeah, there seems to be this sort of sixth sense that emus have um, where they just know where, where the rain's been and where the resources are and they sort of move in that general direction. And rain detectors. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and this is, it's a real mystery to scientists. Um, and what is super interesting about this is that um, in Eastern Australia, these movements um, by emus are, are really sporadic and, and very resource driven. But in Western Australia, it's really regular. Um, so uh-huh. it's just these completely different migratory patterns uh, in the East and the West. Um, so... Yeah, the, the West, uh, Western Australian emus go seasonally um, southwest in the winter and northeast in summer. Um, so, yeah, that was, that's my fun fact for this week. <laughs> um, Very cool. Well, I'm going to follow on with, on, on with, like, sort of the animal train. Um, so I, I'm going to talk to you about how animals are, are adapting to climate change. And obviously there are, there are lots of ways that, that animals can adapt. And, you know, you, you might be able to think of a couple, like Charlotte, you're talking about migration. Um, so some, fun, interesting enough, interestingly enough, can't speak, um, some warm-blooded animals are shape-shifting 
in response to climate change, um, which, which just okay. sounds really bizarre. <laughs> Something out of a movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does sound a little sci-fi. Um, but they're getting larger beaks, legs, ears, and things like that. And it's all because they're better able to regulate their body temperature by doing that uh, as the planet is getting yep. hotter. Um, so essentially, the cl- the change in climate is is heaping a whole lot of pressure on them, and you know some species are trying to adapt, and obviously not all of them can. But um, for those that are adapting, it's actually occurring over a faster timescale than usually what occurs through most of evolutionary time. So it's actually a really rapid shape shape shift. Um, so Sarah, writing at, at Deakin University, noticed some strong shape shifting in birds and. It's not only limited to birds, I must say, but um, essentially all these animals are adopting proportionally larger uh, appendages and why beaks, ears, etc. It's it's because they play a role in thermoregulation. They're the sites of heat exchange. So if you think about how much heat you lose through your fingertips in the winter. Yeah. Um, So... Some parrots and things have shown that they're they're growing larger beaks. Um, some mice are getting larger ears, and and this is really really crazy. But it's you know this idea that temperature influences patterns in overall body shape, and I mean that's not necessarily new, um, but it's more the time scale that it's happening over, which yep. is quite alarming, um, because you know the the idea that geographical regions and and body shape and size has kind of been linked since the 19th century. It's it's what's called Allen's rule. So animals in warmer climates have larger limbs and appendages than in colder climates because you want more surface to area volume ratio um, when, mm-hmm. when you're hot because you want like more surface to lose heat through. Whereas yeah. if you're cold, you want to like, you know, curl up into a ball, essentially. You, you don't want that area. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the fact that animals are shape-shifting doesn't mean that they're necessarily coping with climate change and everything's fine, but um, it's just really incredible that, that now we can see these drastic changes over short periods of time. It's like trying to beat evolution, essentially. <laughs> mm. And wow. I think I really imagine that this would produce some pretty wacky features or, or just sort of exaggerate already wacky features because it's often, yeah, these sort of external appendages like ears and and... and fingers and stuff where the heat is lost and i know in um in the desert in australia some of the little rodents with their like have these massive ears like they're ginormous and super thin to allow for um heat loss um so i'm just imagining them just getting bigger and bigger (laughs) yeah dumbo but like rodent form So we'll be back to talk more about animals, ecology, and and all that fun stuff. Um, Before we go to our first song, just remember that you can follow us on SoundCloud and Twitter at Radio Silence, and our first song is Animals by Shepard. You're listening to Radio Silence here, where we're bringing science into focus on Radio Fodder. You just heard Animals by Shepherd, and that's because that's our topic today. And we've got Charlotte here who's going to tell us a little bit about some animals. Charlotte, what are you going to talk about? So I'm going to be talking about um, animal culture um, and particularly um, this case of the Regent Honey Eater um, and how basically it is losing its song, um, which is a Pretty sad story, oh, but that yeah, sound I know. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
there is some some hope. <laughs> um, all right. So first up, like, do you guys know this bird at all? I don't think so. Maybe if I saw a picture, but I can't. Like, I I don't know it off the top of my head. No. no. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of honey eaters in Australia, like so many. Um, so it's fair enough that you can't pinpoint this exact one. Um, but the Regent honey eater, it's this beautiful little bird. Um, it's got this striking black and yellow plumage, um, with specks of white all through it. Um, and you know, especially when the wings are out in flight, like the, the patterning on the back is honestly, it's so exquisite. It's beautiful. Like it's Um, regal. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. Actually really funnily um, that, you know, that is where the name comes from, but it's, it's former name um, was the warty face honey eater. (laughs) (laughs) Because it has, it's quite a contrast. (laughs) (laughs) It has a little ring of um, sort of warty skin around its eye, um, which is where that came from. But I, I find that quite funny. So this bird is found in eucalypt forest. Um, it feeds on nectar and other plant sugars, um, hence the name honey eater. And uh, it used to be found in huge flocks in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. And you'd often see them just around Melbourne and Sydney even. But now uh, their, their numbers have plummeted and their range has uh, restricted to Victoria and New South Wales Um and particularly just this little region along the western slopes of the Great Dividing Range. Um, so they're critically endangered, um, and there's just a couple hundred of them thought to still be in the wild um, today. Wow. Um, so things aren't looking too great for them. Um, there is a captive breeding program going on at the moment um, that is trying to sort of build up an insurance population essentially and then re-release them into the wild. Um, uh, this is having mixed success. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a lot of research going into it to try and work out how we can, um, you know, improve this, this breeding program and improve the this, uh, chance of success. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's a bit of an overview of the Regent Honey Eater, I suppose. Um, but what I really wanted to talk uh, about today was a discovery that was made earlier this year that essentially the Regent Honeyeater was losing its song. Um, so recent research out of uh, Australian National University has found that a population crash to fewer than 300 individuals has caused the species song culture to break down. So essentially what's happening is that male honey eaters are missing role models in the form of older flock mates who typically would teach mm. them or, or, or like model their song. And so what we're getting is male honey eaters with songs that are just like slightly off. Um, so I'll play you now what a typical, um, you know, proper region honey eater song should sound like. And then here is the song of another honey eater that out in the wild, um, but you can you can hear that it is it's slower and it's just it's definitely not the same um, and it's a lot a lot more simple as well.
And in extreme cases, males are learning the songs of entirely different species because they literally have wow. no, <laughs> no role models. Um, so here's another um, recording of a Regent honey eater. And for anyone out there who knows birds, like that is dead on a little wattle bird. Um, so <laughs> this bird has just taken that bird's song because it was the one it was hearing as it was growing up. Kind of um, makes me think of English. Like, you know how English is just dominating all of these smaller languages that are dying out. Yeah, Sad. 100%. There's a lot of, yeah, parallels that can be drawn. It's It's really... Sad. It's really worrying. Wow. Um, yeah, it's like twelve percent of males um, in the wild were found to only be singing other species songs, which mm. is like that's that's a huge number. Um, yeah. Do they do they take from certain species or um, like is it sort of just a mix? Whatever they can hear. No, I mean, so there's there's some that are just off like it's sort of just a, a muddle but there are some that you can that there's been like five species that are, have been identified in in their coals like and you can because they're such incredible mimics um you know normally they're, they're dead on like so they're learning these songs um just as these other species would sing them but they're yeah. not that species wow. yeah 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 um and so yeah this is really worrying um it's you know it's sad that a song culture is being lost but more than that um these songs are absolutely critical for breeding success um yeah. because females are really picky when it comes to how males sing because it's a judge of character and fitness so when a male is singing a really wacky song or just a song of a complete different species they're doing far worse reproductively than those with the the proper uh regent honey eater song yeah um, yeah, and so, like, Regent honey eaters um, actually do have some mimicry, like, normally um, in their repertoire, I suppose, but that's always in addition to their main call. So what's happening now is that it's just mimicry. Like, that's what we're seeing, um, and that's really problematic. Um, so yeah, females are basically just straight up rejecting these males because they're speaking a foreign language pretty much. That's so rough. I know. <laughs> I know. Fem yeah, yeah. Females are just, um, yeah, their standards are too high for their own good. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, it's important to note that this song loss is not why the Regent Honeyeater is doing so badly. It's it's a symptom of shrinking yeah. population numbers due to other threats such as land clearing and feral predators. But this symptom has now become a further threat in and of mm. itself. Yeah. Um, surely it's like a negative loop where, you know, yeah. reproduction's lower. So. Yeah, exactly. And it's like exactly when uh, these numbers are so small that you need the best, like, highest reproductive success you can get. But that's, yeah, that's not what we're seeing. So, and, you know, this is a big problem for a lot of animals um, because, you know, global biodiversity loss uh, means many animal populations are becoming small, sparsely distributed, and then this jeopardises the ability of um, young animals to learn important behaviours and that sort of culture to be passed on. Yeah. Um. So I'm just going to 
quickly, if I have time, um, talk a bit more about animal cultures um, a little bit more broadly, um, linking it sort of to this example of the region honey eater. Um, and it's interesting because like when I was compiling the notes just for this little segment, just um, I, I wrote this little heading, animal cultures, and I put cultures in inverted commas. And I think this is really telling because, you know, as humans, we're so incredibly reluctant to concede that non-humans are capable of having culture. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've learned lots about this in my degree and mm. I, I'm quite accepting of the fact that animals can have culture, but still I put cultures in inverted commas because somehow human culture is just different and better. Um, yeah. You know, like it's 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 just... I think, yeah, we have something deep inside us that's just like, no, we're better than everyone and we're different. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard a lot of people use that, like, humans can pass on knowledge to, like, each generation and that's they use that as an argument for why humans are better than animals. But clearly, if, if birds are passing on songs from one generation to the next, it's, it's not just humans that do that sort of thing. Yeah, it's definitely not. Like, I was, I was looking at this... Um, like obviously doing research as well. And, yeah, saw that chimpanzees, for example, have culture. And I think it was the first one or first animals that humans were sort of just like, oh, yeah, I guess we can believe this <laughs> now. Because, like, different chimp- chimps in different groups were using different kinds of tools to catch ants. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, like, yeah, chimpanzees and primates are the closest to us evolutionarily. So, you know, that's like... Okay, we'll we'll let them yeah. have it. But no, honestly, I think that's why humans were like, "Oh yeah, okay, maybe." <laughs> <laughs> Still makes us look good. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, literally, it's just one discovery after another that you know, um, saying, "Nope, this animal has culture too. This animal has culture too." And literally, they've even found recently that insects um, seem to show cu- um, culture. Um, so yeah. I think it's this is this pretty big barrier that we um, still are working um, through as humans, uh, um, and, and it yeah it poses a lot of problems I think in in how we approach these sort of issues and conservation. Um, so yeah, um, culture feels like utterly essential to being human, right, and to positioning yourself within a particular group or groups of humans. Um, and the same can totally be said for animals. Loss of animal culture is a seriously dire prospect and something that really needs to be taken seriously because culture can make a, or break a chance, um, a species shot at persisting, just as in the case of the region honey eater. So just coming back to the region honey eater, with these new findings um, that have just come out this year about um, this this sort of song loss, um, there is now a greater focus um, within the sort of management plan and everything on encouraging like correct song behaviour. They've had little little speakers inside the aviaries in the captive breeding program for like a while now where they just like pump out the, the proper song. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. But, but even then, like um, the, the calls of the males that are raised in that environment have been a little bit more um, just simpler and, and a bit shorter, which makes sense because they'd be getting just a, a few recordings over and over. Yeah. Um, 
So now they're, they're trying to, they're experimenting with some adult males, uh, like live adult males in, a, in an adjacent aviary to see if maybe that has uh, more of an impact um, in the sort of learning process. So we just have to cross our fingers going forward um, with, you know, all this um, knowledge that and research that's coming out. Uh, we can sort of refine these processes more and more. But I think, it, like, I just find this example so, so interesting and think it really highlights how we need to sort of foreground the, the reinvigoration of animal cultures in conservation, which I think isn't talked about um, a whole heap. Um, and I, I certainly haven't heard it a whole heap in my studies even. Like I think it was sort of yeah. talked about for half a lecture in one of my subjects, you know. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for that, Charlotte. Um, we're going to be talking a bit more about animals in a while, but before then we've got a song. This is American Pie by Don McLean. You're listening to Radio Silence on Radio Fodder. Um, that was American Pie by Don McLean. Today we're talking all about animal culture. Katrina, what are you going to talk to us today about? I'm going to talk to you about the loudest animal on Earth. Do you, do you have any idea what the loudest animal on Earth might be? Lion. I was thinking elephant. So have we got like a an African theme going on here? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually the sperm whale. Animal so whale. we actually, yeah, we can't hear it that much on land, but it is the loudest um, in that it can make a series of clicking noise that reach as high as two hundred and thirty decibels. So that that's wow. essentially as loud as it gets. Um, and the click only that's lasts. Like deafeningly loud. It's definitely deafeningly loud. <laughs> and thankfully, the noise doesn't last long. Like it's super loud, but it's very brief. Like the click only lasts for 15 to 30 milliseconds, but it can stay audible yep. to a sperm whale that's 10 miles away. Wow. Like it's, it's that loud. <laughs> um, but these clicks, importantly, can form part of dialects and culture which is you know how how it sort of ties into the theme um so you know we're, we're very familiar with the idea of dialects we've got like you know aussie slang versus you know <laughs> british slang american slang um but but we all use kind of different words depending on where we are even though we're speaking the same language um so like you know um a cell phone versus a mobile phone or yep. a truck versus a lorry um so, you know, and, and we even have some Aussie slang that English speakers around the world would scratch their head out. It's like the, the whole rhyming slang thing, <laughs> mm. which does my head in too. Um, but sperm whales form clans with distinct dialects and cultures in, in the Pacific, Atlantic and, and Caribbean Sea. Um, and when they dive together, the sperm whales make patterns of clicks that are known to each other as, as coders. And recent findings have, have shown that not only do different coders mean different things, but a whale can tell which is a member of their community um, based on um, the sound and also who it is in their community based on, like, the sound properties of the coder. Like, oh, you know, cool. you, you can tell your friends apart. Like yeah. 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 So I think that's that's incredible. So essentially it's like they all have accents and, and voices. <laughs> 
but the thing is, whales aren't born with different vocal cords, um, and and it's it's not like particular bits of the sea are particularly suited to a certain kind of click. So it's simply kind of like what you were talking about, Charlotte. They are acquiring these dialects from one another, so they're copying. They're, they're taking on their parents' accent. Um, yeah. So I guess it's another lovely example of, of how, you know, we're passing things on, well, rather whales are passing things on between generations. Um, and it takes whale calves two to three years to learn the family dialect, you know, to, to be <laughs> one with the family. Um, and they even babble before they pick it up, just like, you know, humans do in infancy. Oh. Like you can't under- really understand what a toddler's saying. So it's, it's very similar for a, a whale calf. That's so interesting. And presumably, like, if that calf was, say, separated from the clan, would they, like, stay in that babbling state for good? I don't know. I don't know. Or they might, you know, try and try and pick up another one. It, it could be sort of like um, what your situation was where they're, they're learning it from, you know, people, not people, but, but whales outside <laughs> their clan. <laughs> um, so in the, in the Caribbean, the dominant whale clan use... Like the one one three coda, so that's a one 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 two three. Oh, I can't click <laughs> fast enough. <laughs> um, but you get the you get the idea. It's like yeah. a set of five clicks with pauses in between them, kind of like Morse code. Um, and that's what they use to notify whales of their origin. Origin. Um, and in the the other, so that there are two clans in the Caribbean, and I don't think that they're like you know at war or anything. But <laughs> there are two clans. And the other one just does sort of like regular five clicks evenly spaced apart. Oh. So yeah, you, you've got two different coders. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, these clans share their dialects, um, and and they allow the whales to share information and traditions that help them survive in the highly varied ocean environment. Like for example, some clans in the Pacific might fare better during El Nino years, so they're like, oh hey. It's El Nino time, although they probably won't <laughs> say it exactly like that. Um, and clan members can help each other, like hunt for squid and notify each other of areas where there's lots of prey, or they might warn each other to avoid orcas and, and other predators. So it's really important that, that they're being able to, to talk like this. So it's not quite, you know, important for the same reason in that, um, you know, with the region honey eaters, it was about reproduction. In this case, it's I guess more about safety and and I guess community and um, informing each other of things. So sperm whales aren't the only whales with like accents or dialects. Killer whales can do it too, um, and the the differences between them can be as small and nuanced as like you know different regional dialects of English language. Um, yep. So, like, you know, Melbourne versus Sydney. Um, or it can be as large as, like, you know, Japanese versus English. Can yeah, I ask okay. how, the, like, how they quantify those differences? Like, is it mostly sort of like the, the rhythm or...? Yeah, it's it's mostly the rhythm. So, with, with the sperm whales, um, I think five clicks is the most sort of common and it's how those five are spaced apart that's, okay. you know, sort of the difference. Hmm. And you think, like, how much variation do you have in five? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, like, pitch can can change and things as well. Um, So this is kind of studied, um, like, in terms of killer whales, it it was um, 
studied off the coast of British Columbia and Washington State. Um, and there were like 16 family groups in kind of a, a northern community and, and three in a southern community. And it was um, the curator of marine mammals at Vancouver Public Aquarium that decided to like, you know, record whales for a year and, and track them. Um, so they categorized the, the dialect of each pod. And um, in terms of killer whales, they each typically make 12 distinct calls and all the members of the pod can produce all 12. So, you know, for them, mm. it's very important that uh, each carver is growing up learns everything and, and no whale is left behind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they typically only use the calls in their own pod and that's passed from generation to generation. Um, there might be some calls that are common between families and that kind of tells you something evolutionarily as well, like in terms of how related they are. Um, with genes right. and common ancestors, which is which is quite interesting, like the and and it kind of makes sense, I guess, um, that the calls sort of represent how closely they are genetically mm. related. Um, but interesting, there's there's no grammatical structure, but uh, certainly feeling <laughs> um, because calls are faster and higher in pitch and more frequent when an animal's excited. So you know they they have a, acoustic sophistication, but no grammar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and funnily enough, this, this dialect requires centuries to develop. It's, it's really slow. So this, this implies that some dialects could be thousands of years old. So we've got, you know, super old dialects among all the, these different whale species all over the world, which I think is incredible. Yeah. I think it's also cool that you, you said that they can, like, the rhythm's really important, but obviously the tempo isn't. Like, you can speed up the same rhythm or slow it down depending on the emotion that you know, if they're excited or not. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. Mm. Mm. No, totally fascinating. And I love the idea that, yeah, that it sort of, these things develop over time and probably quite slowly, but you know, when you're talking about it, like clicks and rhythm, you can't help making sort of a connection to how sort of music and, and popular genres have sort of shifted over, over time in like in, in the human world, you know, um, mm going from rock to pop to blues, you know. <laughs> well, I do think it's fascinating that we kind of use musical terms to describe it, like coda. Yeah. It makes me think mm. of a musical coda. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, we we're talking about songs, you know. Animals, mm. animals have culture, animals have music. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Katrina. Uh, we'll be back to talk lots more about um, all things animal culture. Uh, but first, we've got a song. I don't want to talk, I just want to dance by Glass Animals. Welcome back to Radio Silence on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing science into focus. That was I Don't Want to Talk, I Just Want to Dance by Glass Animals. And super fitting because we're talking all about how animals talk and dance maybe. No, not really. But, <laughs> but we're talking all about animal culture. And Kai... I believe you have a story for us about animal culture. Yes, I'm going to talk about a group of animals that have a highly developed and complex social structure, and that is ants. Woohoo! And we've been talking a lot about how animals communicate today, and it's all been about sound so far, but ants are quite different. They talk using pheromones, so chemical signals that they can release and ants around them can detect, and each ant can understand the pheromone signaling that other ants are giving off. 
And depending on the species of ant, they can use between 10 or 20 different pheromones for signaling. And each one of these counts as like a chemical word. So they can use different pheromones as different words and build up communication using the whole... It's a pretty small vocabulary, but it's <laughs> it's obviously enough for ants to communicate with one another because they can communicate all sorts of things like where there is food, if they're under attack, if their colony needs to relocate because there's some threat. So and they've got all different ways of communicating things. And another one that I think is, is kind of funny is when an ant is squished, it releases a specific pheromone that warns other ants that there might be danger. I know that <laughs> pheromone. <laughs> I used to, when I was a kid, I, I had this deep, deep aversion to the smell of dead ants. Oh, really? Yeah. I think I had a very sensitive nose. Well, I've, I've heard that there is actually like genetic reasons why different people can detect ant pheromone or like the smell of squished <laughs> ants like is is quite displeasing to some people more than others so that's, that's I mean, really I'm interesting. in tune with the ants <laughs> yeah and the ants are in tune with each other using their antennae which is what they actually use to detect these pheromone signals and the reason they have two antennae is so that they can detect what direction the signals are coming from because mm. they can detect with you know if there's a stronger signal on the one on their left, they can detect that the, the pheromone signal is coming from their left. So they can use this to navigate, you know, which direction is the ant that's saying, hey, everyone, there's food over here. Where are they? Like, let's, let's go find them. So ant communication is really cool. It allows them to build up these huge societies that all work together as a group. Now, we don't really see it from above the ground, but maybe if you've left, like, food out in your room or something in summer and you've got a stream of ants coming in to eat it we know that ant colonies can be like there's a lot of ants in a colony <laughs> yep and, a heck of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um so ant colonies can range from hundreds of ants or like there's even micro colonies where it's only like a few ants but they can go like much 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 bigger up into the hundreds of millions of ants in a given colony Damn. or as I'm going to talk about in a little bit, maybe even bigger than hundreds of millions, but we'll, we'll get there. So we know that ants can build very large and intricately organized nests. And I don't know if you've ever seen when people have like poured plaster down an ant hole and it's like run all the way down underground and then when it's hardened, they dig it up and it's like this massive intricate network. Mm. And I mean, it's bad news for the ants, but it's cool for science because <laughs> you, can, you can see like how massive these underground tunnels are and all the little chambers that they, you know, use for different things. Like, you know, they have uh, where the, the queen's chamber, where the queen lives and you know, gives birth to new ants and all the little worker ants have their little spots and they store food in different places. These colonies are like amazingly complicated for tiny little animals that, you know, an ant's brain is basically not even worth calling a brain because it's <laughs> it's small and they they don't have they don't have the Sounds capacity a bit for like yeah yeah I maybe I am but they don't have the capacity for like the sort of complex thought that a, a bigger brain can achieve, but that doesn't really matter because of their society and their culture. 
they can all cooperate to perform tasks that any given ant alone would not be able to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's, that's why this ant society is really important. Now, a key feature of an ant colony is that they're all, all the ants in the colony are genetically linked. So, it's like one big family. There's the queen ant, which lays eggs. And, you know, these eggs, like all the eggs that the queen ant lays, they're basically, you know, brothers and sisters. And then some of the worker ants, the female ones, can also lay eggs as well. But because they're not a queen ant, they, you know, ant society says they're not allowed to, and probably biology says they're not allowed to reproduce (laughs) sexually. They can't go off and and find a mate and create their own new colony. Mm. They produce asexually and they're basically just cloning themselves. (laughs) So, in in an ant colony, you've got a bunch of brothers and sisters and a bunch of clones of them. So, I don't know what that would be like if my family, if I had like clones (laughs) of my siblings, I don't know how that would go, but... (laughs) That also sounds quite (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi. Oh, speaking of sci-fi, I mean... Uh, just like adding in the, um, I'm not sure if this is for like all ants, but definitely there are um, some where the queen that it's sort of it's forced sterilization of the workers. Like the the queen emits uh, a pheromone which actually um, prevents um, these yeah these workers yeah. from from um, giving birth. So <laughs> well, not yeah, giving yeah. birth, and but yeah, like this pheromone signaling is is really important. Like the queen can, you know emit those pheromones that prevent workers from giving birth, but also, like, secrete other pheromones that say, hey, you should make clones of yourselves because we need a bigger colony. We need to, you know, go out and attack some other ants. I'm surprised there's no revolution. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of of attacking other ants, because these these colonies are one big happy family, they're non-aggressive to each other. And that's why why they're able to cooperate. But ants from the same species but different colonies will actually compete with each other. So they'll they'll attack one another, they'll fight over, over food resources. And, you know, because they're not the same family, they, they actually compete. Mm. But what if there was only one colony of ants? And this this is what's called a super colony. Now, Argentine ants is one species of ants that is actually one of the worst invasive species in the world it's it's listed in the, the top 100 inv- worst invasive species and we have them in australia and they were Damn introduced <laughs> yeah i know they were introduced in 1939 but in 2004 a super colony of argentine ants was discovered underneath melbourne and by super colony we're talking like spanning over 100 kilometers oh my gosh You've got Ants from the same family all, you know, spreading out and and cooperating. So, we don't have catacombs. We have super colony of ants. <laughs> ant super colonies. <laughs> yeah. And this is a bit of a problem because these cooperative invasive ants are out-competing the native ants. And because all the native ants are from different colonies, they all, co- like, compete against each other. But they have this one massive super colony of Argentine ants come in and take over and it's funny, one article I read described this, like this big family muscling in on other territories as an ant mafia. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. 
do they still have like one mafia boss, like one queen for the whole super colony? Um, like originally, yes, but I you'd have to have more uh, worker ants giving birth to clones throughout the the region to mm. actually maintain the super colony. Mm. But but this is this is a problem because of as an introduced species because they don't have the competition with other families that they used to have back in Argentina. Mm. So that's why these are such a big problem. And there's been more recent research that suggests they're an even bigger problem other than just competition because they carry viruses that can actually harm other insects like bees. And you know, this is this is not good because bees are really important for the environment, for pollinating things. And also ants are actually really important for, like, transporting seeds as well. And unfortunately, Australian ants spread Australian seeds, but invasive ants just so happen to spread invasive seeds. So yeah. that's not great. And, yeah, this is, like, this is a big problem. But also the the lack of genetic diversity among these Argentine ants could turn out to be their downfall because because they're all one massive family and they all have, like, there's so many clones, they're all very similar genes, they could be susceptible to disease. So maybe if we're lucky, disease will come along and wipe them all out or maybe humans can can think about introducing something, but that's a very difficult area. Um, Has to be a lot of research done because we don't want to make the problem worse. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, ant ant society is massive, and and yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, no, I know they're invasive, but I, I kind of love the idea of this giant city of ants beneath yeah. Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy, but it also does like you know highlight the importance of biosecurity. Like I know people just don't oh, take absolutely. it seriously, but like you know, um, vespa wasp. I think no, varroa mite. We don't want that. Like infecting our our bees and obviously you know these ants coming across it's pretty bad yeah make sure you declare stuff at the airport (laughs) especially argentinian ants (laughs) probably came on a ship or something probably thanks for that kai that was super fascinating ants are just incredible like they can do so much um you know build an entire underground city um but that's all the time we have for chatting all about animal culture and remember you can catch us on soundcloud and twitter at radio silence and that's all we've got for this week so thanks so much for joining us our final song sort of carries on our theme of culture in animals it's songbird by fleetwood mac